you may be seated. For God so loved the world. I learned this week that mercy is just love directed at sinners. So he does have mercy on us, and we don't deserve it. But that's why Jesus came. Praise God that there is comfort and pardon in the gospel. You can turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're finishing our Malachi series today before we start back into Genesis next Sunday. And we're going to finish Genesis in a four-week sprint. And I'm looking forward to that. But I'm looking forward to Malachi. So as you're turning to Malachi 3, it's, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So get to Matthew and turn back a page. This book of Malachi, it's written as a series of disputes. It's very unique in the way it's presented in Scripture. The people of Israel are putting God, the judge of everything, on trial. And as God makes his defense, he exposes the people's own disobedience, their own corruption. The graphic that we've, we've had uh, that Kyle's designed for us is almost political cartoon-like, right? You've got this judge who just can't lift the gavel. It's like Mjolnir. He's not worthy to lift that hammer and wield that because God is the judge. So the book began with the first dispute against God, the first accusation. The people say to God, how have you loved us? Look around. Do we seem like people who've been loved? And now the book is ending with the final, the sixth and final dispute by them saying, what's even the point of serving God if the wicked seem to be doing so well? What's the point? In other words, it begins by despairing of God's love and it ends by the apparent futility of loving God. What could be more modern and relevant? than that. What's the point? Does he care? So we're going to be in Malachi 3, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, but we're going to read it in three chunks as we go along. Um, So here's the blueprint for today's message. It's three points. One, does God even care? Two, what will God do? And three, what has God done? That's where we're going. Let me pray for the Lord's help. Father, send your spirit now to illumine Christ and the gospel to us through your word. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. And we ask you to unite our hearts to fear your name, that we may give our whole selves to Christ gladly. Amen. Let's begin reading in Malachi 3.13. We're going to go through verse 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. That's relatable. It's hard to follow Jesus when the arrogant people seem to be the happiest people. When people who do evil and throw morals and scruples out the door seem to get 
richer and get their lives made easier, when people live lives that fly in the face of God and all of his rules and authority, and they get away with it. Not only do they get away with it, but they seem better off than we do. That's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus like that. Why not? Why not join in with the prosperous and the well-to-do? If people who reject God are the happiest and the most prosperous, then what's the point of worshiping and obeying Jesus? That's what the people in Malachi's time were feeling. Why offer sacrifices that God's going to ignore? Why pray if God doesn't hear, if he turns away? And why, why pray if he's not going to do something about it? Why put on the sackcloth and ashes of mourning and sadness if God won't take notice of us and do something about our terrible circumstances? That's their theology. I wonder if it sounds familiar to you. It does to me. Their theology was myopic theology. It's short-sighted and nearsighted. It's very them-focused. And I can relate. I think we all can on some level, because we think that if things are going well, then God has blessed us. If your circumstances are rosy, then God is smiling upon you. Right? And then if things are not going well, then God must be ignoring you. I'm not even sure he cares anymore. Maybe he's uninterested. He certainly seems uninvolved. Many of you, I know, have been seriously wronged and harmed by another person. And yet, we bear the weight of that, don't we? If you've been harmed by somebody, that the injustice of the fact that now you have to carry that burden around. Don't you feel that? You might have wounds and pain in this life that won't go away in this life. The wounds that are too deep. How is that fair? And doesn't that prove that God is disinterested, uninvolved, and unjust? In light of that, there's two ways to live. One, you can live with faith in your own feelings and circumstances. Think about that for a moment. I believe in what? My feelings. I believe in my circumstances. That's one way. Or you can live with faith in the living God who does not change. Whose steadfast love, whose faithfulness to you never flickers and never fades. Regardless of how we feel or what life looks like for us right now. Those are the two ways. You might say there's the way of not fearing the Lord, but fearing everything else, or the way of the fear of the Lord. Let's read the next section here, Malachi 3, starting in verse 16. Thinking about those two ways to live. 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed my, his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. 
Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Those who feared the Lord. That's how this section starts. And it's in contrast to the section we read a moment ago of the ones who are grumbling against the Lord and saying, I don't even think he cares anymore. Those who fear the Lord. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? I tell you, I took so many stabs at writing a definition that is biblical and robust enough to capture what it is, and I can't do it. So I'm going to give you a bunch of definitions. And it's going to contrast worldly fear with godly fear. Okay? Worldly fear causes us to recoil away from the thing that we fear. You move away from it. Godly fear leans in toward God. Worldly fear is based on the potential for harm and hazard. Godly fear is based on the stunning potential for free and powerful mercy. Worldly fear brings with it aversion, revulsion, and hatred. And godly fear brings with it obedience, awe, and love. Worldly fear breeds foolishness. When you're scared, you make bad choices. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Worldly fear makes me feel dirty and small, shame-filled. Psalm 19 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That's the difference between worldly fear and the fear of the Lord. I don't know how to sum that up in a sentence. But the people that we just read about in the first chunk, verses 13 to 15, did not have that godly fear. They did not fear the Lord. They put their faith in their circumstances and their own feelings instead. They didn't love God. They didn't revere him. They didn't obey him. They recoiled away from him. And they've been doing it since the beginning of the book. How have you loved us? They've been putting God on trial rather than leaning in toward him. But what did the people in verses 16 to 18 do in spite of their difficult circumstances? Because you'll notice all these people are in the same circumstance. Right? The ones who didn't fear God and the ones who did fear God were going through the same trials. So what did they do? Well, they feared the Lord. And verse 16 says, and it's easy to pass over this, but it's, it's big. Verse 16 says, they spoke to one another. Why does it say that? Because what we do when circumstances are hard and God seems far away is we speak to one another. And we stir one another up to love. And we remind each other of the promises that we base our hope on. We tell each other of the goodness of God. We pull each other out of those dark pits in the name of Jesus. We speak to one another. That's what they were doing. And God said, I can work with that. God says in verse 17, I will spare the ones who fear me. And in verse 18, essentially, he says, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, guys, and you're going to see a distinction between the righteous and the evil, between the ones who fear me and the ones who don't. Notice, by the way, that righteousness doesn't mean moral perfection. It means fearing God. Right? That's how he defines it here. 
In other words, God's saying, you think that I'm uninvolved, maybe unjust, and disinterested in your life, but I'm about to do something. That's why he says, once more, you're going to see a distinction. I am about to act, says God. So that takes us then to point number two. What's he going to do? What will God do if he promises action to those who fear him? In the face of the accusation of being uninvolved and uninterested, what is the action that God is promising? Well, let's look at Malachi 4, verse 1, through verse 3. (laughs) This is good. For behold, the day is coming. The day is coming. Burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So what about the arrogant, the evil, the wicked, the abusers, the oppressors? God says, and he does not mince words, he says, I have a day stored up for them. The day is coming. Justice will prevail. If you don't get anything else from the sermon today, hear this. The day is coming. We talked about this last week. All of our children, when they send in questions, they're all pointed to heaven. And we have forgotten. We grow up, we leave Neverland, and we forget that the day is coming, that it matters, that there's an eternal hope of standing forever in the presence of God, being whole and complete. And there's an eternal danger too. And the day is coming. All wrongs will be righted. All of them. Every single one of them will be put to right. For the ones who are wronged, there's nothing better. And for the ones who do the wrong, there's nothing more dangerous. The day is coming and all wrongs will be righted. All oppression, all abuse will be punished. And Malachi says that day is one day, but it's like two things. It's like an oven or a furnace, and it's like a sunrise. He says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. What could be more beautiful than that language? But he also says it will be burning like an oven. So it will be salvation and healing and mercy for all who fear the Lord. And that same day, will be a furnace for those who don't. And it will burn them up like stubble, he says. That might sound really harsh to you if you have not faced deep into the evils of this world. If you have not been crushed down and ground down and oppressed and abused. But if you have, first, I'm sorry. And second, you know that a mere I'm sorry from an abuser or someone who's oppressed you doesn't suffice. 
they can feel remorse for their actions, but it's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't heal the wounds that those blades have caused. You need something more. It's because God has created you hardwired for real justice. We need it. We long for it. We desire it. No prison sentence is enough. No I'm sorry is enough. No reform in the systems and institutions is enough. You need God's justice. You need the day. You need the day of the Lord. So God is not uninterested, uninvolved, or unjust. He says to, to that accusation, the day is coming. I promise I will act. And if in this brief moment of our existence, things don't seem to be going our way and we don't feel that God is present and involved and caring, he's so involved that he has tilted all of human history toward one cosmic day when justice will prevail, mercy will win, wrongs will be made right, tears will be wiped away, and evil will be eradicated. All of human history is careening toward that end. It's not an inevitable end. It's one that took power and love to bring about. God designed it. He could not be more involved. And everything that happens to you in this world is moving the needle closer to that day by his beautiful design. Andrew Peterson has a song called Rise Up on, um, I think, Resurrection Letters. I want to read some of the lyrics to you because he captures what my heart wants to say better than I can. Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall. Every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl. The king of love will one day crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? And would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Doesn't that get at something in your heart? The day is coming. The King of love, the Lord of hosts, will satisfy our desire for justice. And that means that in every broken place in your heart and every broken place in your history, every wound you bear that seems incurable, God will accomplish such justice and satisfaction that you will feel whole. It's the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. And it's a burning oven. One event and two results. That's not the first time in the Bible we've seen that. Every salvation event in the Bible comes with both salvation and judgment. In Noah's day, the flood was salvation to Noah and his family from the wickedness around them. And it was also judgment and wrath on the wickedness uh, and the wicked who were swallowed up in that flood. In Moses' day, the Red Sea was the path for the Israel, Israelites to freedom. It was their salvation. And that same Red Sea was judgment and wrath to Pharaoh who pursued hotly at their heels. And now there's a new day coming. 
the Apostle Peter says it this way. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That day is salvation and judgment. A son of righteousness in a burning oven. Is it any wonder that we fear the Lord, that we tremble in his presence? A godly fear. But the day of the Lord is not just, it's not just out there in the future, right? It was for Malachi. It was for the people that he was writing to, but it's not for us. We can put our feet down on something in history, looking back. And that takes us to our last point then. Number three, what has God done? So Malachi is, like I said earlier, the last book in our Old Testament. And on the next page is the New Testament, page one of the gospel according to Matthew. So while I was studying in this Bible this week, Malachi 3 and 4, I noticed that even as I read about this future hope, as Malachi is looking toward that far off day for him of when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, through the thin pages of my Bible, I could see the first page of the New Testament. As I read the dismal final words of Malachi 4, the last two words in the Old Testament are utter destruction. And through that, I could read behind it the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? For Malachi and his readers, this was all tilted forward to the future, but we can look back. See, when we put God on trial, What he does is he points backward and he points forward, both of them at the same time. Let's think about that as we read the the final few verses of Malachi 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This is how the Old Testament ends. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Look back. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold. I will send you Elijah the prophet, look forward, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So look backward, Israel. Remember Moses. Remember the law. Don't forget who you serve. And look Ahead, look forward and hope for Elijah, the herald, who will announce the coming of God and the Messiah. Now, I had a whole section here about how Elijah is John the Baptist and all sorts of cool stuff and how Jesus is the true and better Moses, and it's all good and it's all true, and I don't have time, so I'm not going to get into any of it. But if you are interested in those things, I'd love to talk to you about it. Here's the reason why I don't have time, is I want to sink our teeth into the gospel. Because the answer of does God care finds its fullest answer in Jesus and in what he did in history. So we're going to go there. And to get there, I want to tell you about Joan. Joan was our neighbor. It's not her real name, but I feel it appropriate to change it. When Becca and I were first married, Joan was our neighbor in this apartment complex. She lived across the way. And um, she was in her 60s retired, retired artist, professional hippie, um, 
dabbled in Eastern religions and New Age spirituality. And, you know, we prayed for her for a long time. I could never work up the guts to talk to her about Jesus, but we felt the Lord's burden to pray for her. And so one day, a year later, I bumped into her in the laundry room. You know, we're just putting loads in the, in the washing machine, and, and she's asking me questions, just chatting. And I said, Lord willing, we'll do this and that. And she just sat down her laundry basket and said, Lord willing, are you a Christian? <laughs> I was a little embarrassed that she didn't know that by then after a year. But I, and I said, uh, yeah, yes. And she said, I just became a Christian this week. We were blown away. Do you know how she came to Jesus? Of course you don't. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, she was flipping channels and came across a televangelist with bad theology who preached the gospel. She preached the cross and forgiveness. And Joan realized that she could finally be free of the weight of injustice and abuse she'd been carrying around for 60 years. See, when Joan was a child, her father had abused her and her sister. And even though her father was dead, she carried around this thing like a boulder on her back. And she tried everything to get rid of it. She knew that if she could just forgive him, actually, not just pass by the wicked and say, never mind, it's fine, don't worry about it, not cover it up, but really forgive him, then she'd be free. So she tried Reiki energy flow stuff. She tried Buddhism. She tried transcendental meditation, you name it. But when she encountered the crucified and risen Jesus, she got free. <laughs> Sorry. She was able to forgive. She realized that we're hardwired for justice. And to circumvent that and just try to wipe evil away is actually unjust. And God is not like that. We're hardwired for justice because we're made in his image. And God is just, which means that every ounce of evil, every oppression, every abuse must be paid for in full. There will not be one that skates by, not one. So when the one man in all of history who never sinned, the one man who was perfect, who was righteous, when he was nailed to a tree, he took on himself all those evils. Paul says it this way, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. He took on all the evils that were ever done and would ever be done by those who would trust him. And that means two really important things. First, it means that when we see Jesus on the cross, in the pages of Scripture, in our mind's eye, we can know that God is just and will not overlook one single evil in this world. They will all be paid for. The second thing we know is that everyone who loves and trusts Jesus is entirely forgiven because those evils were not overlooked. They were paid for by Jesus the one man who didn't deserve to pay for any of it. That means that we can trust him. And that means when the question comes up, does God even care? What's the point of serving him? The answer is, of course he cares. He cared to death. 
one day we are going to look Jesus square in the face. And he has a face. He is both God and man. There's a human in heaven on the throne. We're going to look at him in his face. And yeah, you'll notice the color of his eyes and the shape of his smile and whatever. But what you're really going to notice is that you're going to be satisfied. Completely satisfied and whole for the first time in your life. Because that evil committed against our friend Joan will be fully paid for, either by Jesus or by the one who committed it. That's the certainty we have in the cross. That's the power that we have for forgiveness. And if you have a wound like that, one that goes so deep that you don't have any hope of it being healed now, I promise you, you will be made whole. Not on my word, on God's word. You will be gloriously satisfied. Now, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he is love. And he's just. And from the perfect and inseparable union of mercy and justice, his one and only son, Jesus, died on the cross. And he suffered the just wrath of God for the sins of all who would trust in him. So that, as Paul says, God might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. So I'm going to conclude by giving you just four reflections excuse me, on what the cross of Jesus means for us today. First of all, it means that we have a forgiveness that we don't deserve. Like we said at the beginning, mercy is just love directed to sinners. We don't deserve that, but we have God's mercy. We don't deserve his love, we don't deserve forgiveness, and we don't deserve to be adopted as children of God, and we don't deserve to be enriched with the riches of Christ, and we don't deserve to inherit all things, but we have it. Praise God for his mercy. So that's the first thing. The second thing, it means, the cross of Jesus means, that you can receive the power to forgive the unforgivable. Not because of a good example. And good examples don't get us anywhere. Good examples make people who just try harder and think effort is the way to perfection. That's not the point. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He doesn't say that to say, Well, Jesus forgave, why can't you? He knows Jesus was God. Jesus did what only God could do. That's why he had to be both God and man. What Paul's saying is, when you encounter the Jesus who forgave you all of your evils, you are transformed. And you receive from him the power to do the same. In Christ, our forgiveness knows no bounds, inasmuch as we know the boundless forgiveness that we've received. Jesus himself said, the one who loves much has been forgiven much. The more that's that's why we guys we confess our sin every Sunday here. Do you know most churches don't do that? It's a little weird. We do a lot of weird things. But they're norm, they should be normal for Christians. Because the more we confess our sin together and privately and to one another, and in all the contexts, the more we remember how much we have been forgiven. 
And if we wonder why we can't seem to love more, maybe we need to reflect on how much more we've been forgiven. That's the second thing. Third thing, it means that whatever evils we have done can be completely paid for by Jesus and become the fuel then for powerful good. I actually just said that point, right? Love much because you're forgiven much. In other words, the very places where you've wronged Jesus become your fuel source for the good you can do in the world with Jesus. The more I see how much I've harmed him and wronged him, the more I love the mercy of Christ and the more I can extend that mercy. Like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Now, fourth and last, the cross of Jesus means that even when the evildoers seem to prosper, we can be confident that the day is coming. The justice of God poured out on Jesus at the cross is a down payment on the final justice. It's a foretaste. It's first fruits of the harvest. See, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to new life on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he is coming back once and for all to judge the living and the dead. So when it looks like evildoers are prospering and getting away with it, we can know for certain that they are like the grass of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. But the eternal purposes of God's justice and mercy will stand forever. Let me pray for us as we prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you that you are not inert. We thank you that you are not sitting back and watching this world you created spin downward into chaos. We praise you that you are not um, helpless against all of the evils and atrocities done in this world. You are powerful and you're in control. And there is nothing outside the bounds of your sovereign power. And there is nothing you are not turning into our greatest good. And we believe, though we can scarcely believe, that one day it will all be worth it. And that we will be made whole. So we praise you for Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment. And if the Lord has revealed to you now... Um, hidden things in your heart that you need to bring to him for that kind of mercy. Do that now.